Okay, we're just kicking off the uh, final session. Just to introduce myself again, I'm Pat Dunleavy from uh, LSE Public Policy Group, and I'm uh, really grateful to have with me uh, Richard Bartholomew uh, from uh, the uh, Head of Government Social Research, uh, Edward Malhuish, yes. right? yes, who does uh, uh, Impact Evaluation of Sure Start, which is a very key government program, mm -hmm. and Sandy Thomas, who's the Director of Foresight Program, which is one of the uh, absolutely most important and interesting and interdisciplinary kinds of uh, government programs that has had a lot of impact. So uh, we're going to kick off with Richard yep. and then uh, go through in the order and then we'll have lots of time for questions, followed by drinks and canopies, which I was supposed to mention to you as a visual incentive for stay with the session. So. Great. Um, hope you can hear me. I'm sorry I couldn't be here early on, and I hope I'm not therefore going to repeat things that other speakers. I just caught the tail end of, of a previous speech and recognised some of the things I was going to say, so I hope this isn't too repetitive for you. Uh, that's me. Um, I'm Chief Research Officer at the Department for Education. I'm also joint head with Denny, Jenny Dibden of DWP of something called the Government Social Research uh, service, which is around a thousand um, social scientists, social researchers working in government. Some of you may have had contact with some of us. We are the main instrument, if you like, for commissioning social science research by uh, government departments. Um, what I'm going to do is briefly present two uh, models. You may, some of these may be familiar, hopefully. Um, two models of how academic research can influence the policy process, perhaps. The first here is the, uh, sorry about the, the clip art, the first, the classic linear, I did this for an uh, LSE uh, postgrads uh, lecture, so I thought they'd like uh, the clip art, I'm sure you do as well. Um, the first is the classic linear ideal type model we all tend to have in our heads, both in government and uh, no doubt yourselves, about how uh, research should influence policy decisions from the original research through to appraisal. Uh, through dis decisions and implementation. If the appraisal shows that maybe we're not entirely sure about the validity of the research, its applicability to a wider range of situations, we'd probably do a trial or pilot before we make our final decision. Then we might monitor what's happening to make sure actually is uh, achieving what we thought it was going to achieve. Um, so it's a straightforward linear model. Uh, lends itself well, I would think, to the research evaluation framework. Uh, it's direct, transparent, measurable. It's fairly well defined in sequence and timing but it's also um, rather technocratic, rather apolitical, actually. Uh, the science tells us fairly clearly what to do and whether it will work, and then, if necessary, we do the evaluation just to make sure before we spend lots of public money. But the political process is largely absent. It, it's happening somewhere else, actually, off this, off this chart. And how realistic do we think it actually is as a model of the real environment in which policy decisions have to be made, the environment in which I work. So I present you with an alternative model, which is a bit more busy, shall we say. Um, it's actually from an American academic, William Gormley, um, who wrote this, so I've stolen it from him, I have to say, uh, in the a recent issue of the uh, American Science magazine, the, the uh, official magazine of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, He's analysing here the research influences in the United States on education decision-making, uh, and you can see it's a much more complex, messy, not exactly linear uh, model. You could no doubt join the arrows up in lots of different directions if you wanted to. Not so easy to measure with the kind of ref met metrics, but a fairly realistic picture, I would say. I, I kind of resonated with me straight away when I saw it, of the, of the political policy process, and some would indeed call that actually democracy. And the percentages, you may be wondering, of, on the Gates Interest Groups and Research were actually based on another survey in the States which asked ministers and officials, White House um, polit politicians and officials, um, what they felt was the primary uh, inf influence on their own decision-making. 33% of those people mentioned interest groups. Only 15% mentioned research as a primary uh, influence. So I think something like 50% mentioned research as an influence. But actually the key thing about this, obviously, uh, to highlight is the multiple influences, the stages and players you can see there affecting whether and how a piece of research has impact. I won't go into them all, um, but the other thing is the time dimension, the length of time, which could be several years actually, between um, the research input on the left and the policy outcome somewhere over on the right. And then the effect of all these different players, 
that they, the effect they may have on the message that actually eventually gets through over to the right-hand side and what policymakers and others end up taking from the original research, which may, as we know, be slightly different or very different to what the research actually said. And no doubt the mass media will help us with that process of um, losing quite a lot in the translation of the message, perhaps. Um, also, the importance down the bottom here, the economic and social conditions, the importance of external exogenous factors, the stage the political cycle is at, um, whether it's before or after elections, where a particular party is in its, its trajectory, whether economic and social conditions are favourable um, or not to a research-based idea getting off the ground. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be times of plenty. Some research ideas are extremely attractive in times of, of shortage and, and reductions in public expenditure if they show something that can be done much more cost-effectively in the past. On the other hand, if you want to roll out a massive universal <coughs> programme on childcare, it's probably kind of easier to do that in times of plenty and uh, hopefully some of those times might, might return someday. Um, so ex exogenous factors and... Um, the important role of seemingly, this is my favourite one really, as you can tell, seemingly random chance events in themselves, and I've anglicised it by uh, using Harold Macmillan, if some of you remember Harold Macmillan, possibly have heard of him, his um, apparently apocryphal quote when he was asked by a reporter, what, what are the, what's the thing in, in his experience that's lo most likely to blow a government off course, and he said, uh, allegedly, events dear boy, events, well apparently he didn't actually say that, but anyway, he kind of... We have, we have to think that it, we've had to sort of create the, the saying for him because it does summarise an awful lot, I'm afraid, of what politics is about. Events, uh, sudden events, unpredictable events, one has to respond to those in the political process. You have to treat those as a fact of life. Um, so we can choose this second and rather messy, uncertain model uh, as something of aberration, if we like, a deviation from that ideal type we, we saw at the beginning there, what the, of what the proper relationship between science and policy really ought to be. But I'd suggest that if you are, if you do think it's purely an aberration, you're probably going to get a strong sense of frustration for much of the time and, and disappointment when reality doesn't actually shape up to that ideal type. We feel it in much in government as government researchers, as I'm sure you do, but are we realistic about that? The alternative, I think, is we can use our skills of those of us who are social scientists to understand how this complex process works and therefore where and when, as researchers, we are likely to have the most influence and who is most likely to be interested in what we say at different times. So I'll leave you with some final thoughts. Um, politicians are likely to be more receptive. This is kind of blindingly obvious, I guess, but it's worth saying. Politicians are likely to be more receptive to research-based ideas when they're in opposition. No surprises there. De developing the pro when they're still developing their manifesto proposals. It's obviously rather harder, um, I'm sure I'm preaching for converted here, to change, uh, for governments to change tack once they've been elected under a clear set of commitments, at least for a while. Not in every area. Not, manifestos don't cover the whole field. There are lots of areas where governments, even the day after they're elected, don't in fact quite know what they should be doing, perhaps, and need clarification of, of, of where they're going on policy directions. But there's also a crucial second window opportunity, which uh, um, one can often see a few years into the life of an administration, when the initial policies have been delivered, maybe have, have not been delivered quite, have not delivered quite what uh, was intended, or have simply run into the sand. And that's when policymakers are looking for their second win, something fresh, a new agenda. That's also a golden opportunity. It's quite hard to define that when that exactly is. It's two to three years in, maybe. It depends on the policy. And there are other areas where the manifesto certainly doesn't um, define exactly what the best policy uh, should be. Um, you need, um, I think, a realism to have an impact in, 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 with your research, a realism about the investment required in actually implementing it. Um, what's the value for money of it? What's the payback period? Things that will have a payback for, for government expenditure in the shorter term will inevitably tend to have a greater attraction than something that is very long-term, but that's not to say that those long-term re returns are not very important sometimes. Realism, too, I think, you have to have about the means of delivery, not so often a thing that research finds it difficult to address. The idea may work in theory, fine, but do we actually have the means, does the government have the means of delivering it in any reasonable time scale? Does it need a completely different set of, uh, a different type of workforce? We've experienced this in, in setting up uh, early years policies over the last 20 years. The need to anticipate the need to train and develop the workforce before we can actually achieve these things. And that's true of many interventions that which may work very effectively as a trial, but you actually need lots of skilled people who understand the process working out there in the field if it's really going to happen in practice. Then the key importance of events, dear boy, events. 
Um, now, you can either see that as something you can't control, obviously you can't in, in a direct sense, but the question is, are we ready as researchers to actually give good, sound advice when it does happen? Have we, are we good at deploying what we know? Saying that, oh, Minister, you need a, a five-year research programme before we can answer, that's probably not the most welcome response. It might be the right response. But actually, shouldn't we be able to say something else? Shouldn't we already have some evidence there? OK, that's a matter of chance sometimes, but can we make it less of a chance? Are we ready to give wise advice in those circumstances? Because that's a circumstance where... Ministers and policy officials, the people at I advise, desperately need information on what to do. And if you can't give it, they will have to go elsewhere. And it, 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 we should be actually providing good scientific evidence at that stage rather than having to draw an anecdote and, and other types of advice. Um, interest groups, self-evidently, um, often have more clout than researchers as such. Are, we, are you talking to them? Are we talking to the right bodies? Are we trying seeking to influence them with our research? And then last but by no means least, the importance of building relationships between researchers, policymakers, ministers, interest groups, building a relationship of trust and giving wise counsel when it's requested. Um, I think that's one thing where I have been critical of the REF process, the, the, the metrics. It's very hard to have asked this at a number of events. How does it capture that, that wise advice? People like Ted Miller, she's going to speak to you in a moment. Um, we rely on people like Ted and others very much to get good, sound, expert advice at key stages. Um, the REF process perhaps ought to value that. I'm not sure how much it does, but actually that kind of advice, based on a range of evidence, the knowledge of the researcher rather than just a single individual project, can be key in influencing policy thinking. It carries real weight because it's trusted advice. So building those relationships of trust with people in government, I talk of officials as much as ministers, is really key to having influence. Thanks very much, Richard. So uh, let's move on to Edward. Mm -hmm. And uh, Edward, I think you're going to talk about uh, long-term implementation. No, no, I'm going to talk about uh, evaluation. My history of uh, research and on policy-related matters and some of the things that have happened in my life which uh, have affected whether that research had any influence on policy or not. Thanks. And I'm going to, um, well, I started in doing work which is policy-related back in the 80s. That's the 1980s, not the 1880s. Um, when I did some work on daycare. And uh, I remember a senior civil servant telling me at the time, the reason the work was commissioned, to a large extent, was uh, the basis of um, the, min the relevant ministers having a baby of his own and his wife wanting to use childcare and then realizing there was next to no information about it available. Some, some research, being done, research was necessary in this area. Um, now, I think that illustrates some of the way in which sort of personal viewpoints of politicians can influence the, the kinds of research which take place and also whether they pay attention to research. That research uh, led to the, um, to some extent, influenced the 1989 Children Act. And one of the reasons it did was because the research itself revealed that um, many childcare set settings around the country, even those run by government departments, were unregistered. And uh, therefore needed, you know, there was a clear need to upgrade the legislation with regard to regulation and monitoring of uh, childcare facilities, and that led to the 1989 Children Act. And um, I found myself scribbling down on a, a few sides of paper what I thought should be included and then finding those, those scribbles translated into civil, civil service ease, as it were, in the, uh, in the actual act. Um, back then in, into the 1990s, I started work, in 1997, started work on a project called EPI, Effective Provision of Preschool Education, together with a number of colleagues. And this rather proved to be a rather serendipitous piece of research in that it was commissioned by the outgoing conservative government. And it was commissioned because they had introduced a policy of vouchers for preschool education. And they were willing to commission the research, provided we included at least one area of the country where this voucher scheme was underway. So we could look at whether the voucher system was working as well as looking at the effect, general effect of preschool education. And, you know, we, we sorted that out. But then, as the project was funded and then got underway, there was an election, new government took over, Labour government took over. Then after a few months of the Labour government, they suddenly realised that there was this project going on that they were really interested in. And so we started to talk to the uh, Labour politicians and uh, 
we actually got the project increased in size to include further interests of the incoming Labour government. Now that work then went on for several years and as the project went on, which was a longitudinal study of several thousand children looking at the effects of their preschool experiences, uh, we found that those children who had uh, preschool education, particularly high quality preschool education, showed a number of academic and social benefits. And um, we reported this to the, to the department, uh, and the department was interested, therefore, in tra transforming that evidence into uh, a basis for providing universal preschool education, that is, free state-provided preschool education for every three- and four-year-old in the country. Um, now, that obviously would cost a fair bit of money, and so while the proposal was originally made by the Department of Education, Treasury inevitably stepped in. We want to see the evidence for this before we'll okay the extra expenditure. So we had to make, present the evidence to uh, the Treasury. And the Treasury were quite impressed by the evidence, I think, and they said to us, yeah, that's very good evidence, but can you tell us why we should spend the money on preschool education rather than just giving it to poor mothers? And because the poor mothers will not be so poorly off. They'll therefore be less stressed, less stressed, be better parents, and the children will benefit. So the, the relevant economists then in the Treasury asked us to reanalyze our data to do a direct comparison of uh, the preschool education effect versus the effect of different levels of income. And we, we did this, and we came back to them, and we, saw, we showed them that basically one year of part-time preschool education produced the same effect as increasing income by £17,500. Now, one year of part-time preschool education at the time cost £2,500, so obviously there's a huge uh, differential there in the relative cost for equivalent benefit. Um, and I think that's another lesson that came across from uh, translating research into policy, is that very often the key decision-makers are economists. And if you can translate your evidence into something which an economist feels happy with, uh, particularly obviously a financial argument, then uh, you're much more likely to get paid, att uh, paid attention to. Okay? Um, and that led to the Treasury accepting our evidence and the 2004 Children Act, which made universal preschool education for every three and four in the country. Um, now, while we were doing that work with EPI, I started work on the National Evaluation of SureStart in its original form, the 1999 version of SureStart, where we looked at a large number of SureStart programs around the country and followed up many thousands of children in the SureStart programs and many thousands of children who were in equivalent areas but not receiving SureStart programs. And Around about 2004, we presented evidence to the minister at the time that basically Shore Start was having very mixed effects, some good, some bad, some indifferent, and so on. And that was almost coincident with us presenting the evidence that a particular kind of preschool provision called children's centres, which we were studying in the EPI project, was having very good effects. And basically, the, government, the minister then decided, okay, we'll transform the whole basis of Shore Start. We'll make all Shore Start programs into children's centres. And that was the basis of uh, another act, which I've forgotten the name of it now, which led to uh, the transfer of children's centres to local authority control in 2006, but that all, all Shore Start programs had to follow the children's centre model. Now, that happened to uh, work in the sense of research influencing policy because very much the it fitted with the political viewpoints of the relevant ministers in charge. That is, it was adding confirmatory evidence to the way that their thinking was going anyway. And I think that was a, a very important point in why that uh, influence took place. Um, and so subsequently, the work on uh, Shore Start Children's Centres has influenced 
the uh, guidelines about the provision of children's centres. Um, but again, one feels that the ministers involved vary enormously in how much they pay attention to any evidence you present before them, depending on their personal interests and their, you know, their particular ideology. Some of the ministers we've worked with really seem rather uninterested, quite frankly, whereas others have a really passionate interest in the area. And some of the most profound policy changes in, the, in, in this area have been undertaken by those... Sorry. <laughs> um, ministers, I should have done it before. Um, by those ministers who clearly, even before they saw the research, had a very clear personal and ideological interest in the topic of the research. Others, other ministers we've worked with since have been clearly less interested, even though often the evidence we've been able to, had to present to them have been equally as compelling. So um, I would emphasize serendipity as being very important, you know, being in the right place at the right time, basically. Like the EPI project was in the right place at the right time in 1997. It just happened, you know, and it was serendipitous that it was in that way. Um, when we look at, you know, whether they pay attention to our evidence, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, it does seem to be influenced by personal and personal in, uh, interests of ministers, and also ideological uh, interests of ministers as well. Thanks very much, Edward. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And now, Cindy, uh, it's going to talk about foresight. You just press the space bar, it should go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm the last one of the day. I think there's going to be some discussion before the reception. Uh, I've got five minutes, I think, so I'm going to be uh, quite brisk uh, in what I have to say. Um, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes saying, telling you about what we do and how it relates to the academic policy interface. I'm going to say a little bit about how we do it and then I'm going to focus on impact because I think that's going to be the, very much the test. So briefly, Foresight is in the Government Office for Science. It's about 30 people who work across all government departments. And the government, a government Office for Science is a semi-autonomous bit of government. So although it's in the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, uh, John Bennington, who heads it, government chief scientist, he reports directly to the head of the civil service, Sir Bob Kerslake, and to the prime minister, rather than permanent secretary. So we have a, a particular uh, identity, um, which in some ways is, is, is relatively unusual. So our job essentially in foresight is to um, help government think longer term, to make decisions today that are more resilient to future uncertainties. And that's the attraction that we try to create. This is not about thinking fanciful ideas many decades ahead. It's about thinking about making um, today's policies much more resilient uh, to uncertainties. Now, in terms of the kinds of things that we do, this uh, program, which is absolutely dependent on, on top academics, and we use a very large number of them around the world, this program was recast in its current form about seven years ago, and most other foresight projects um, in government around the world tend to be focused on technology foresight. So they will also be using academics, but they tend to be thinking very much about what are the new developments that are going to be important, particularly for economic growth. What we do is we think about complex policy issues which are largely driven by science uh, and technology, but I use science in the broadest sense, and there's a lot of social science that we look at. There's also quite a bit of economic analysis. Now, so, some of the big reports we've done, which um, uh, are about, now about uh, 13 nearly in number, um, have, they're all very different. You can see that I won't go through the list, but you know, flooding, mental capital, obesity, these kind of complex topics. They're very diverse, but they all have a number of factors in common. They all use um, top academics to bring together the evidence base. So what we're doing here is getting um, really high-quality, robust, peer-reviewed evidence um, from um, a variety of sources. Uh, we'll work very closely for two years with a group of academics, and there will be, will be a chair there as well. Overall, each project involves up to 400 scientists of various kinds, so they're big, so we've had at least 3,000 people going through the process. Uh, the, the small group that stays with us obviously get changed by the process as well. We won't do a project unless there's strong ministerial support, so every department 
um, that sponsors a project has to provide a minister, or if there's two departments, we have two ministers chairing a, a strategic oversight board. And in all of these, um, it's the evidence and the longer-term analysis that we bring together um, to uh, think about uh, how policy and priorities and strategies around government can be better informed. So how does it work? How do we use academics in a way that really stands up to the, the difficulties and the challenges of working government? Well, first of all, we have this inner group. So we've, we've just started a new one today on the future of manufacturing, and I met my lead expert group, the core experts, for the first time. They're going to be with us for two years. Um, we've got the government chief scientist who, um, who's in charge overall, and a foresight team of, of scientifically, mostly scientifically literate uh, officials who work with us all the way through. They'll work with several hundred other experts over the two years, and um, those will not just be from the UK, they'll be international, and they'll be doing a variety of things. They're more arm's length because we commission a lot of evidence, um, there's peer review work to be done, and quite a lot of other work, such as, such as modelling or systems analysis. And there's other groups here, which is quite an interesting experience for the the, um, the academics who work with us closely, the core experts, because they get to meet ministers, they get to interact with the policy officials in the top right hand, they get to meet other kinds of stakeholders, and are thinking about how, with us, how to translate all this um, evidence into policy that's meaningful. So here's an example of the kind of work that we'll commission. This is The Future of Food and Farming, published a year ago. In fact, today I've just come from um, a one-year-on follow-up meeting chaired by a couple of ministers to review how we did in terms of impact. One of the framing aspects of this particular project was supply and demand, full food, and all the yellow boxes are some of the driver reviews, which are about big reviews, about 10,000 words that we commissioned. We also did modelling. We also had a food chain workshop with the industry and so on and so forth. Now, all of these involved a very large number of experts. We brought all the evidence together. That evidence will be peer-reviewed. It will be published in journals. About you know, 80 to 90 percent of it will be published, and it will feed in to the final report. So um, it's absolutely crucial that the experts um, are willing and able to work in this this quite driven process. So the other point I wanted to make is that it's not just a matter of pulling together a complex multidisciplinary evidence base in a political environment. It's really about the translation realm. We've already heard about a little bit about that from the two previous speakers. So unless we can distill that evidence down, boil it down into a report that might be 200 pages, for example, as well as publishing all the, the driver reviews and so on, unless we can boil it down into key messages that really have political traction, um, then we're not going to have much of an impact. So every report, and we've got food and farming as a recent example another one here on migration and global environmental change. We have to have these top-line key messages in order to be useful to government. That doesn't mean to say there isn't a rich, um, um, uh, a, a, a lot of analysis underneath them, but, for example, um, radical redesign of the global food system, um, no change is not an option on the migration, rather than millions of climate migrants being displaced, Quite a lot of them are actually going to be trapped, we found, and that people will actually move towards more risky areas rather than away. Now, these are a novel, um, particularly in the case of the migration, novel key messages which are necessary to um, uh, attract policymakers. Now, just very briefly, because I've only got a couple of minutes left, I just want to say a little bit about impact, because we make this big effort. We have three big projects going at any one time. We've got a new program where we have a couple of one-year projects as well. So what do, what do we achieve in terms of impact? Well, I've said that we have ministers sponsoring projects, working with departments. Unless we've got an owner for a project, we won't actually take it on because then it's really hard to get impact. Uh, three examples of reports, future flooding, future obesity, uh, future um, in terms of mental capital. And he, these are examples where each one of these uh, three reports has directly led into um, a new government strategy. So just this one, Making Space for Water, published in 2004. Um, that heavily cited the Foresight Report and came very much in the wake of it um, and also led to about 270 million uh, new funds for pounds for uh, uh, flood defence. Um, on the case of obesity, new government strategy uh, four months after the report in 2007, and we took that analysis and gave it to the Department of Health six months before we published the report so they would use the evidence even earlier uh, than we published it. 
um, mental health, what's interesting here is that um, this report went into the previous government's 10-year mental health framework, had a um, big influence, particularly in terms of positive mental health. That was set aside when the coalition came in, but we worked again to, uh, to, to get the evidence into the new version, and the report again is, is heavily cited. So we can point to very specific examples. It's not always um, uh, as fruitful as that. But the follow-up that we do uh, of a particular report, and we use the academics extensively in the follow-up process to get impact because they have the credibility and they have, I think someone said earlier, it might have been Edward, they have the knowledge um, rather than just expertise in a narrow area um, that's attractive to ministers. Um, so over, over something like a five-year period, we'll be able to detect impact in several different kinds of publications. This is an example uh, from the flooding report. So we do track what's, what happens. And of course, what we're talking about is having impact on policymakers, getting them to use the evidence that, um, and formulating it into attractive messages that are relevant uh, with, with a whole range of academics. In terms of the actual impact of the policies that the evidence fed into, then that's beyond our remit. And, and it's the Department of Health, for example, which is evaluating the um, uh, Change for Life program, amongst other things that were related to our report. So I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. First of all, the academics that we use, absolutely crucial to the process. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't work for a variety of reasons if we just, as officials, went out and did research ourselves and tried to put together the same thing. So academics are terrifically important. It's a really a translational role. It's not just bringing the evidence into government. It's translating it into a, into a form that will appeal uh, to uh, and, and help and inform policymakers. And at the same time, it's a two-way process because I think for many of our lead experts, this is quite a, a different process to anything they've been through before, partly because they're working with um, multidisciplinary people in area of interest for two years uh, and also because they're getting to meet and have to be challenged by the realities of taking their academic work and getting it into policy. One or two of them now are being able to uh, get this into the REF process. So there's a, we also pay them. Um, so they can, there, there are attractions for them in terms of doing that. That's all I'll say. Thank you very much, Sammy. Okay, well now, let's uh, pull the panel speakers back up and we can go straight into a, a fairly swiftish uh, kind of final set of questions. And uh, I'd like to try and pull two or three questions if we can. So, uh, any, particularly thinking here about the long-run impacts of uh, social science and other research on government, maybe helping government to avoid mistakes like health and social care. Oh, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shirley S. Campaign uh, for Social Science. Um, I'd just like to ask the panel, clearly you're using a lot of social scientists in the government. Um, are there favoured social scientists? How are people selected to contribute to the projects that you're involved in? Okay, let's take that one. Uh, any other queries? Yes. I think a, um, a running commentary is time. So it's a long-term horizon that when you think about policy influence. Um, but uh, that also makes me think that uh, if you have to think about time, you might be, um, you might be doing research that is not going to be relevant or in demand for quite a long time. But it's not, not because of that, it's not, not important. It's quite important, but it might just have its time in 10 years from now. Uh, so you know, if... If the government and if, if we are talking about policy-relevant research and having impact, um, who is going to be doing those, uh, those studies, for instance, that ministers don't care about right now? Um, so who is going to be doing the studies that will be relevant in 10 years from now? Okay. And the third question, that just there. Uh, Gordon Hector from the Jersey Furniture Foundation. Um, I recently moved to a, a research funder from corporate lobbying uh, for my sins. Um, it strikes me that many of the challenges are the same, and there's a real danger of overemphasizing the uniqueness of academia as a type of organization trying to uh, influence policy. And one of the biggest changes in lobbying in recent years is obviously the coalition and the nature of policymaking um, in that dynamic. And there's a lot less room for maneuver in a coalition. You've got two parties to keep on side, um, and you have most decisions made in the five days after the 2010 election. So I just wonder what the panel think, how a coalition compared to a single party in government affects uh, policymaking. 
Okay, great, great questions. Well, uh, Edward, do you want to say something about being timely? And uh, then we'll go to Sandy on favourite folks and Richard. Well, because you were in being, yes, weren't you? Yes, um, being timely is very important. This part, that's part of what I mean by serendipity. I mean, sometimes you, you, you yeah, happen that, to come... That from... makes it sound like it's just luck. It wasn't it just was... luck you were there, was it? Uh, well, you actually... were brilliant. You could <laughs> <laughs> see the issues coming. Right? Yeah. Well, the we, reason we wanted to do the research because we could see the issues were relevant, yeah. yes, but it, it was serendipitous that we happened to put our proposals forward at a time when there were some politicians in, in power who also saw mm-hmm. our, our uh, projects as being so uh, useful to them. I mean, actually, in the case of the last Conservative government, uh, the pre-1997 government under setting up Pepe, there was actually a, a rather um, under-the-table method, as a, uh, motivation behind doing the research, because it was about privatizing preschool education and the voucher system, and providing vouchers in order to privatize that, that, that with a mind to that being a for- one particular conservative uh, politician actually said to me, we see this as a forerunner of a vouchers for the, for the school system. That is, you know, they thought that introducing vouchers for the, preschools, for the school system would not be politically acceptable. But if they get accepted for the preschool system, they could then use, use the argument to um, move it up, as it were, to the school system. And the reason we got funded was because there was this interest in the voucher system for preschool education, and it was a very big influence, and, I, and a purely ideological reason why they paid attention to our research proposal. Of course, it then became serendipitous because we, we won the contract to do the research, and then a new government took over who had a, a very different interest in our, in our project because it happened to fit some of their electoral promises. Um, and the ideological commitment of, in that time, Gordon Brown um, in, in the area. So there, there's a, one thing I would say about the long-term issues, uh, I think this is a fundamental flaw with our current method of uh, integrating research and policy, is that there are very few politicians who are prepared to take a long-term view. And I think there's a great dearth of policy-relevant research, which is taking a long-term view in this country. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sandy, you do nothing but long-term. No. Yep, How do you true. choose your people? Is it, uh... um, well, in the case of social sciences, recently we've been using this new Academy of Social Scientists, which Carrie Cooper, mm-hmm. I think, is president of. Is that mm-hmm. right? And he was mm-hmm. our chair of the lead expert yes. group on MCW. So he immediately it forward brought it to our attention, which makes our job a bit easier, actually. Otherwise, we use fairly conventional methods, desk-based research, looking at people's citations, looking at what people mm-hmm. have done, um, talking to other people. I mean, normal kind of triangulation. But, ha- but certainly we will, and we use the research councils a lot. We, we go down to the research councils, see who's getting big grants and interest, doing interesting work, this sort of thing. So fairly conventional approaches, I think I would say. And then um, in terms of, uh, sort of, I suppose the focus perhaps on what do you do with unpopular topics that are important but aren't perhaps, there isn't a political appetite for that? Well, I mean, there's a variety of ways in which you can try and deal with that. It's actually quite difficult because if it's really, if there really isn't the support in a department to do a particular project, however, however you, you shape it, then they're not going to take a lot of notice of, of what you produce. And what we're trying to do is always inform and influence policy. Um, but quite often it's the difficult, complex issues that do actually worry politicians in many ways. I mean, obesity is something that was you know, very difficult to tackle but actually, and, and you know, targets failing and all that sort of thing in 2007. So actually getting some science there to say, well, you are going to fail because it's going to take 30 years to sort it out. That's what the science tells you. Um, is actually, you know, it's actually quite encouraging for politicians because they then were able to point to the, being the first in the world to be able to... Uh, take that point of view. Um, in terms of, very briefly, in terms of the coalition, I suppose it, it hasn't really made that much difference um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the operations. We've got the same sort of budgets. Um, our money comes from the science budget. Uh, we're very pleased to have Vince Cable sponsoring our new project. So it, it's, it's a mix. And obviously there are bigger changes afoot in government which are to do with the amount of strategy work that's being done in general. And obviously the PASC committee has been looking at that recently. 
Um, yeah, uh, favoured social scientists. Um, well, formally, uh, for research that government social research directly commissions, it's open tendering. Anyone can actually bid for that work. There are usually two stages for that. So um, we select people on the basis of their ability, their skills, their background in the area for work that we directly contract. Um, we also have government social researchers set up a, a broader consultation network with the leading research organisations, including the Academy of Social Science and others, to actually get a, a broader contact, uh, contact with the research community to make sure we've got a conduit for finding out what their views are and for, for them to ask us hard questions about what we're doing and to challenge us on things. So that's been very useful. But actually... Well, I'd say it's about the skills of the individual very often we're looking for, not just the technical skills, though I think there is often rightly a quantitative bias in the research that government's interested in because and that isn't to the exclusion of qualitative research. We certainly do commission quite a lot of qualitative research. But as Ted was saying, if you're going to convince the Treasury that they should spend millions, billions of pounds on something, you kind of need some numbers, actually. Now, that doesn't mean you don't need qualitative research to contextualise that and, and to explain what it means. But qualitative research is simply not, on the whole, going to convince people with part to part with lots of money. Now, I, as a sociologist, realise full well the limitations of quantitative research. It's not the final story. But without it, I'm afraid it's never actually going to... Cut the mustard. It's not really going to actually persuade uh, people to uh, c commit very large amounts of public money. So it's as much about the skills as as anything else, and the ability. I think so. Saying about trust to communicate, not in a sort of with lots of press releases necessarily, but to translate the research into something that policymakers can do, and practitioners in the field. It, it may be great research, but unless you can do that translation job, and often that's the role of my colleagues, asked to say what actually the key thing in this research, what's diff what this research is telling us that's really important, valid, and relevant, and different to what's come in the past is X, you know, the importance of children's centres. And it, it does take particular skills to do that, and researchers who can develop those skills are going to have more influence and develop more trust. If you issue lots of press releases, it may have lots of media impact, but is your message really going to get through? And sometimes you can set up an unfortunate reaction to that because things do get lost in translation, and that often is unfortunate in terms of the message that's getting through. Um, the coalition question, it's interesting. Actually, I think it makes life more interesting for people working <laughs> in government because there's no single view. When I was talking about manifestos, so what is the manifesto? There wasn't a single manifesto before the election. There were two separate manifestos for Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, but what we have in government is something rather different to that. So actually... You know, it's very it's harder, I think, to say well, what is the evidence that will most interest government? Because government is covers a broad range of, of different interests. So actually, I think um, it's probably encouraging for a range of research rather than restrictive. It and makes life the... interesting in different ways, sometimes challenging but interesting. Are we at the second wind yet? Uh, no, almost, I don't, almost I don't there. Think we're quite there yet. No, no. <laughs> it depends on the issue, and so, as I said, some issues. Uh, rightly so, uh, the work that's going on now on uh, increasing adoption and so forth, there wasn't a sort of a, a big chunk, as I recall, in the manifesto saying this is the right thing to do, but research is being, whatever you, you may think of, of, of particular policies on that, our research, very solid academic research that's been commissioned over a long time, showing the limitations of, of aspects of um, foster, well not fostering, but actually the dangers of returning children to their, their birth parents too, too readily and not thinking about the alternatives is being quoted now very directly by ministers, actually, has been very powerful influence. It's a good example of where research has been listened to. Okay, let's move on to some more questions. Uh, Gina? Yeah, Andrew Shaw. I uh, recently joined the uh, Department for International Development, but I th it'd be quite interesting to go back to where you started, Patrick, with your optimistic... I don't know if we can get the slides up, because obviously Richard and Sandy haven't seen them, but I, I, I was fairly convinced by that. And then Richard walked in, and I thought about my former colleagues working in education, or in a lot of cases not working in education research institutes after the, the clear-out of the last 18 months. So, uh, you know, what's the views around the room and on the panellists of your optimistic scenario? Okay. My optimistic scenario, just to run quickly, was that uh, there was increased demand for research from within government because of austerity and lack of ability to fund consultants and uh, so on. Perhaps a more managerialist politics, so less, more important with getting it right rather than uh, ideology. And I still think that's important in the coalition too. Um, 
and also universities are keener to work on ref type things uh, and uh, there's a lot easier communication between policymakers and banks it's not as difficult as it used to be and, and in, in many ways there's a kind of in, instant kind of blogosphere type effect which is really expanding the scope of detailed surveillance of government policy making and, and creating a need for detailed defences and detailed rebuttals and evidence and so on. Yeah. Do, you, do you agree on yeah, I mean, the whole uh, commitment to transparency of data, putting data out there for citizens to challenge government and local services is, is a positive thing, I think, and that applies to research evidence as well. And GSR has a code of practice on publishing all commission research, so it is out there for um, people to challenge and say, well, this isn't right, and the blogosphere kind of encourages that. The risk is the mistranslation point, I suppose, and what credibility is given to research and given sufficient kite marks or whatever to, to actually what's, uh, what's sound research and what isn't. It's just, um, so I think that's the challenge. But in many ways, um, we, we are an information society, and that is, you know, is not, there's no going back on that. So governments have to work in that environment as well. They, they are challenged by select committees, public, public accounts committee. We're being challenged, I think it was today, actually, on our early years policy, those are all right and proper things in, in a democracy and increasingly with the transparency agenda we hope citizens will have be feel empowered to actually challenge particularly for example the availability of local services to use some of our very powerful statistical data to say well why are my schools in this area why are they seem to be well, my children's school performing less well than that one why are the adoption services why does my local authority have a very relate, low rate of adoption of children compared with a, a similar authority elsewhere and that is the power of well, as much statistics as research if you want to draw that distinction. So I am I'm reasonably optimistic about that. Research in terms of expenditure has um, taken some reductions as a result of the uh, general reductions in public expenditure, but not disproportionate ones, interesting. They are in proportion to the overall reductions, and the science vote did pretty well. And I think David Willett actually is clearly a minister who does have a lot of respect for social science in um, making a very good decision on funding the new Asif Birth Cohort study, 90,000 uh, babies in 2014. And um, a colleague there who asked the question about long-term research, I think that is a very good example of government backing long-term research, which has a payoff, but several, well, a decade down the road, basically, and in some cases 20 or 30 years down the road, because there's a very good track record of the value of those big birth cohort studies, big science, basically, investing in that. So I think that's a very positive thing. How about you, Sandy? I mean, uh, the blogosphere has been a very big area for controversy about many long-run things, especially global warming and everything related to that. How are your studies standing up against... You haven't had anybody organising big tax rating on your uh, credibility of your studies? Not especially, and I guess... I mean, I wasn't here at the time you were discussing your optimistic viewpoint. I mean, I guess... Um, I mean, it's been pretty... From, I can only really speak for the Government Office for Science and, and my half of it. So I would say we're using experts as much as we ever did, and it's very good to hear some of them valuing that experience as part of the new REF system, which I think is a, a welcome development of being more tuned in. I mean, I've certainly picked that up myself a bit. And, um, but obviously there are, you know, there, there are lots of... Um, lots of opportunities that have been there for, for example, scientists and other advisors in government um, through the Science Advisory Councils, for example, they're still there. There's still quite large numbers of them. Um, so I don't think there's any cause for pessimism particularly. Um, it doesn't mean to say that there's um, a lot more to go around in terms of work, but there's, there's some serious commitments which I think we were just hearing about. Um, and I think the, 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 the health of the science budget is encouraging. Okay, one last round of questions. Given the optimistic scenario uh, just painted, can I ask the panel to reflect on uh, what lessons they would draw from the health and social care bill? Yeah. Okay, good question. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I, I, long ago in 1995, I published a paper which said that Britain has a, a unique and enviable reputation as uh, having more and bigger policy disasters than anywhere else. <laughs> and uh, I stand by that uh, <laughs> viewpoint. But uh, any, any, any thoughts on helping governments not to make a mess of things, really? And, um, 
helping governments okay. not to make a mess of things. I mean, that, that's really... Well, I think one thing is well, some areas are rolling out a programme on a pilot basis yeah. before going mainstream with it will be one way they can avoid some big disasters. And also, where you have policies which are controlled by local authorities, why not use the local authority structure in the country as a basis for a series of natural experiments? Or the devolution. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think those are ways that we can avoid major policy disasters, or at least reduce the major ones to minor ones. Yeah. <laughs> Sandy, you, you've, been, you've been looking at things like how to not have large numbers of houses flooded and, uh, yes. and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's working in terms of heading government off? From well, I think so, and I was able to demonstrate impact of, of the evidence in, in terms of government thinking. What happens to those policies in years down the line is obviously something really very complicated and obviously elections will sometimes interrupt those, those, some of those um, developments. So it's, um, you know, it's for, it's Obviously, with more transparency, we'd like to see you know, more publication of, of, of evaluation of policies, which is, which is very healthy. Um, I mean, I can't comment on that particular bill. I'm not cited on that. But um, uh, thinking about the longer term, you know, thinking about policies being resilient, using evidence where it's available, doing pilots and evaluating, these are all things that have been you know, sound advice for rather, rather a long not time. Not rocket science. Yes, yeah. exactly. Richard? I think, I mean, a number of things. Yes, pilots can be very sensible. Uh, international comparisons, cross-national comparisons with similar administrations mm. that have similar social structures. The international evidence from the OECD on educational performance from the PISA study is very powerful and, and uh, officials thinking about what uh, school autonomy and the importance of that in improving performance. So there's lessons you can learn from there. Um, I think, though, it's the dilemma of the change and being a political process and research process. Pilots are great, but in, as I mentioned in my talk, in many cases it's not possible for politicians to work, wait five years. That's the whole duration, the maximum duration of a parliament mm -hmm. before doing something. And you have to realise that, the different imperatives there. And it might be ideal to trial something very, very thoroughly before you launch it, but that's often not a choice you have available to you. I think the role of social science in government is to narrow down the possibilities. It isn't going to give you all the answers to what works. And a, a policy change, it's not really possible to do that in a random controlled trial. There's a lot of different things going on there. You can trial aspects of it, but policy change doesn't actually lend itself to a single trial. Now, hopefully some bits, I'm not saying you shouldn't trial some key bits about purchasing or something like that, but actually the whole policy change is much broader than that. So I think it's unrealistic to think you can have a perfect test of that. You just have to try and see and rule out through previous research and comparative evidence those things that are least likely to work. Yeah, I mean, that was done in education policy where the federal government said it wasn't going to fund particular programs unless they got a trial or, or failing that were actually setting up a trial. It can work for targeted um, changes. I don't think it works for something that would work very easily for like, change of a whole health service, actually. Uh, that's too broad a change. You could trial elements within that, and I think that's where it has been used in the state. I don't know enough about it to say whether it's changed system, trialed system change as opposed to particular interventions in particular areas or particular schools. If you mostly with regard to interventions arrived, whole mm. system changes, it's very difficult to, yeah. to actually uh, make it practical work, but it certainly led to a lot of what you did, and it was simply enacted. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I would encourage that, exactly. Well, thank you very much. It remains for me to thank the panelists. Perhaps we can uh, say thank you to them.